0: Uh, If you haven't been with us before, let me welcome you. Uh, My name is Dan Barber. I'm a ruling elder here um, and kind of covering some as uh, Pat is on sabbatical. So welcome this morning. It's great to see you. And we are in 1 Thessalonians, walking through that this summer. And as we continue down that path, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do... Thank you for the opportunity to hear your word again. We thank you because it's living and active, because it is from you. It is given through you by your spirit. We pray, Father, that as it is preached this morning, that we would receive it, that we would receive it with humility, as James says, because the word has power to save our souls. Would we walk from here, not just hearers of the word only, but doers, would you be pleased to work that in us and through us to each other? In Jesus' name, amen. So I try and share, um, as we're going, I'm trying to share more about our story and um, how it is that we came to be at Fountain Square. And so, in, we gra- I graduated seminary in 2011. Uh, my wife finished up the next year uh, with her degree. Uh, and then I worked uh, for two years for the Air Force out of St. Louis, um, which ended up, as it turns out, if you work for the military, they're gonna treat you like you work for the military, even if you don't. Um, and so I was gone quite a bit. Um, and so we moved, left there when my contract ended, and moved to Atlanta for a time of healing, uh, to be near our family. And my job situation didn't really work out there either. Um, for a variety of reasons, I had a couple of different jobs there. And, uh, so then we ended up, I was laid off. Um, we had just put a down payment on a house and then three days later I got laid off. So that was exciting. And six weeks later, um, got a, the, the job here. Um, and my job was up in Carmel. And so we were, you know, doing what people do. I was here, I I kind of flew up and was, you know, working for the week and trying to figure out where we would live and called April up and we were talking and she's like, I think we should live in Fishers. And we were in the suburbs at the time in Atlanta, which is a much bigger city, right? I think we should live in Fishers. So I drove one day from Carmel to Fishers at five o'clock on 116th street. And I said, we shouldn't live in Fishers. Shouldn't live in Fishers, definite no. Um, that's a hard pass for me. So, um, we ended up getting a rental in Carmel, um, that was very near my office and it was great. And, um, we started looking around for churches and visited a number of churches. Um, our city is blessed to have a number of PCA churches. And, um, then we came to Redeemer and it was pretty obvious, like kind of right from the get go, like that's where we were going to land. And so we started trying to figure out, okay, well, where are we going to live? You know, kind of like, okay, we're in this rental right now. we are we going to do? And, and we wanted to be in the community, right? We wanted to be near our church. We wanted to be in that community. So we made plans, started building a house and made plans to move downtown, downtown-ish, right? 22nd Street. So not downtown, downtown, but you know what I'm saying? When you're in Carmel, everything south of like 70th Street is like downtown, right? <laughs> and so... As I was telling my coworkers, some of my coworkers um, were like, Dan, you're crazy. What are you talking about? They'd say things like, Dan, you must not know, and I know you're new here, but you must not know that Carmel was voted in 2013 as the best city in America. It's the best city in America. I mean, I know we have a lot of roundabouts, but it's the best city in America, <laughs> right? Why would you ever go down there? Or they say things like, you're not going to send your kids to IPS schools, are you? This is Hamilton Southeastern. Is that really responsible of you as a parent to do that? Why would you do that? right?" And I began to face like, just a lot of opposition and misunderstanding to the whole thing of like what we were trying to do. I'm just trying to do what I think God wants me to do for our family, right? But this kind of opposition to that arose as part of that story. And it brings up a lot of questions like, what do we do and how do we respond? We've talked about the opposition in Thessalonica that Paul faced, how do we we respond to friends, to family, to coworkers, to others around us when there is opposition and it arises? That's a good question. But I wanna suggest this morning that that's not the best question to ask. A better question is, is it worth it? Is living a life that pleases God worth it? Whatever opposition comes your way, whatever things arise, however things don't work out the way you think they are supposed to, like as is happening in Thessalonica, is it worth it to continue walking to please the Lord? And that's what Paul's talking about here in chapter 2. In verse 1, he says, You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. We don't... Scripture sometimes speaks in this way where it'll emphasize a negative because it's trying to actually make a positive point. Uh, If you're an English teacher, it's called a litity. L-I-T-O-T-E-S. A litity. It's the emphasis of a negative to bring out a positive, right? So let me say it in a different way. You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was worth it. That's what Paul's trying to say. This whole paragraph um, from verses 1 to 11 um, is just one big paragraph in the original text, and we're going to look at it over the course of a couple of weeks. But today, Paul's going to give us two reasons why it's worth it. Why living a life pleasing to God in the midst of opposition, whatever arises, is worth it. The first one is in verse 2. It's worth it because only God can overcome opposition. Only God can do that. Only God is powerful enough, loving enough, kind enough, wise enough to overcome opposition. And secondly, in verses 3 and 4, only God can approve our hearts. Only God sees inside and knows what's really going on. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, Let's pick back up in verse 2. Paul says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, if you haven't seen, you're probably tired of looking at this, right? But I'm trying to remember this. It's so important when we read these letters to remember um, that they're not written to us. My, My seminary professor, my Greek professor used to say, we read the Bible like it was written 50 years ago in English, right? We forget that this is a letter to people in the midst of a story, right? And so if you haven't heard the story of the Thessalonians from week one, go back and listen to it. Right, And you'll remember that Paul's on this big journey, and he's going to Macedonia because it's the only place that he really has had a door for his message, and the first time he gets there, he experiences all of this crazy stuff, right? lands in Philippi gets thrown in jail, has to have an earthquake that's sent by God to break him out of jail. It's crazy. And so he says, you know, we've been shamefully treated at Philippi, and you know this. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago as well, that... Paul is constantly, throughout this letter, reminding people of what they know, that he has shared his life with them. He says, you know our conflict, right? He didn't hide it from them. He shared it. That's part of what living in community means. It means that we're sharing our conflicts with other people. Now, conflict, as it's written here. Um, is usually translated, like if you're reading it in your English, it's usually translated as struggle. Like it's kind of used all throughout Scripture. Um, sometimes Paul uses it to talk about like an athletic con- competition, right? It's a kind of conflict, right? It's, a, it's got a different purpose. It's a planned conflict, right? Sometimes it's persecution. But both of those examples are talking about conflict and struggle as it's external to ourselves. Right? And that's primarily what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about, you know, the external conflict we experienced in Philippi. And you and I, we might experience some of that, right? Some of what I talked about, uh, you know, as part of my story just a few minutes ago, right? You, we might experience that. And as the world continues to move toward maybe more secularization, maybe that will become more prominent but there's a deeper sense of conflict that each of us faces each and every day. And that's the conflict internal, the conflict with the flesh, the conflict with our sinful selves, right? Uh, We talked about this last week, right? Uh, When we were talking about rescue from Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul is saying, I'm not doing the things I want to do. I'm actually practicing the very things I hate. Why am I doing this? Right? This internal conflict, the internal struggle to live a life pleasing to God is the primary way you and I will experience this and the primary thing we need to be sharing with one another. Why do we keep having such a hard time with it? Right. That's one thing that I've asked myself a lot. So another little part of my story, I became a Christian in 94, 1994. And um, the first book of the Bible I studied was Colossians. And I don't really have like a life verse like formally, but a verse that has stuck with me for a long time is Colossians 2.6. And it says, just as you received Christ as Lord. So in the same eagerness, with the same dependence, with the same desperation, with the same thankfulness. So, walk in him. Really simple, right? The same way you did that, just keep doing it. Just keep living in obedience. Um, But like you, I have had problems doing that. (laughs) Um, And one of the ways I've talked about it um, and you know, with you many times as part of sharing the struggles is about my struggles with food, right? Um, food for me has been a coping mechanism for 40 years, as long as I can remember, right? It's the way that I deal with boredom and happiness and pain, um, and fear, right? It's, it's where I go to. I mean, I, I'll just be doing stuff and I just find myself like standing in front of the pantry trying to do something. And in, 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 The way that I deal with that internal struggle most of the time, which is not very effective, is to just tell myself, okay, I know this is not going to fulfill me. Right? I tell myself all the things I know about sin. And I say, Dan, I know, you know sin is emptiness. You know that it's vanity. You know that it has no power To change your behavior has no power to change your heart has no power to do anything else and at the end of the day it's just going to condemn you and yet time and time and time again what do I do I still do it the internal struggle right you guys with me on this you guys know this struggle why does that keep happening over and over there's a Scottish minister named Thomas Chalmers. I've talked about him before, though it's been probably like a year and a half or two years. And he has a, a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Um, and it means that, that love is the only thing that has the power to drive out anything else. And this quote, is a, it's, a, it's a few sentences, but I want to read it to you because it's so powerful in terms of how we deal with this internal conflict and live lives pleasing to God. He says, the revelation of Jesus, which dictates so mighty an obedience, also places within our reach as mighty an instrument for obedience. It brings to the admittance of the very door of our heart an affection which once which once seated upon its throne will either subordinate every previous desire or bid it away. It is in the heart we are enabled by faith to hear his beseeching voice as it entreats the return of all who will to a full pardon and gracious acceptance. It is then that a love paramount to the love of world and expulsive of it first arises. When we are released from the spirit of bondage and admitted into the number of God's children, through faith that is in Jesus Christ, the spirit of adoption is poured out into us It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires and the only way in which deliverance is possible. If we're just trying trying to deal with sin in the internal struggle of our hearts, by just stopping doing what we, are, what we think we shouldn't be doing, right? Or just trying to power through it. But we're not working at the same time to realize the love of Jesus that is greater than those things. We're going to keep struggling with it day after day after day. And when I'm sitting there and I'm deciding in the moment, yes, I'm going to go ahead and eat, even though I don't really think I should because I'm not really hungry, I'm just trying to medicate. Right In those moments, I'm forgetting the love of Jesus poured out into my heart by the Holy Spirit. The love that has given me everything already, that has made me a co-heir with Jesus. The love that is stronger than all of our sin. The love that tells me it's worth it to stop doing those things and to come back to my true love, my first love, Jesus. So only God can overcome the opposition in our hearts, and he does it through love. But that's not the only way. Look at verse 3 that Paul gives us for uh, our second reason why it's worth it. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, Or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul is making an appeal to his brothers and sisters, and he's saying, Be reconciled to God. We talked about those words last week. Be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Right? Be rescued from your sin. All those things, this, this, uh, this appeal is like a strong request, it's an urge. It's, it's, it's Paul saying in, in one other place, it's translated as begging. I'm urging you, not because I'm doing anything wrong, not because I want to get anything out of it myself, I'm urging you as one who is approved by God. In Paul's day, it was very common not unlike today, um, that there will be other people out proclaiming their own messages, right? Their own gospels, whatever those things are. Um, but it was also very common for those people, uh, to rely on the generosity of others as well as to take advantage of other people, right? So today we might call those people, uh, snake oil salesmen, for example, or, um, we might look at it as preachers who are looking to get wealthy off of the people that they minister to, right? Different ways contextually that we might say, but in Paul's day, there were a lot of people who did that, and it's one of the reasons we'll look at next week why Paul never took a cent from the Thessalonians, because he never wanted to have that as something that could be used against him. He always worked with his own hands. Paul, uh, in a sense, the original bivocational pastor, um, and so, Paul saying, in, in contrast to these other people, I'm speaking to you truthfully, not to please you, but I'm speaking the truth, and I'm doing it, doing it different. And what gives Paul the power, the motivation to be able to do that? And the clue is in the verse. He says, we are speaking because God has approved our hearts. He does the same thing earlier in verse 2 when he says we have boldness in our God, right? Paul, Paul didn't have boldness in and of himself. It wasn't about himself. It was because he was approved by God. What does that mean? Um, in some of this, it's hard to get just from this verse because it's, it's not based on anything that happens in this verse. It's not because Paul is doing what's right in the moment. It's not because of that. It's because God knows Paul's heart and God has declared him to be approved. When he looks at Paul, because of the finished work of Jesus, God sees the righteous obedience of Christ for his entire life in place of Paul's sin and condemnation. That's justification by faith. That's what gives him approval before God. It's not because of what he's doing. It's because God called him to be someone who is approved. Even when Paul literally was putting people to death against God, God called him out of that. There was nothing Paul was doing to become approved. And what that means for you and I is if approval by God is based solely on the completed work of Jesus, then there is not one thing that you or I can do to add an ounce of approval to God through obedience, and there is not one thing that we can do to diminish His approval in us because of our sin. And when we understand that, we understand that we are able to live and minister and to seek to to employ a life that is pleasing to God out of who we are in Jesus. We don't have to do anything else. We're just living out of what we're supposed to be, of who he's called us to be. Paul is saying in this verse, everything I'm doing, I'm doing because I'm living out of my approval with God. I do not need to be ashamed. Right? Right? So he's living out of his identity and saying, because God approves, and I know that in my heart, I'm free to be able to minister and to speak, to proclaim with boldness, to do all the things that God has called him to do, even in the midst of opposition. Because at the end of the day, there's nothing that can diminish God's approval of him. So let's go back to our question we asked at the first. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to try and live a life that's pleasing to God? And Paul's given us a couple of reasons why. Um, Hebrews 11.6 talks about pleasing God. And it says it this way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. For the last few weeks we've talked about and I've mentioned this several times, right? The questions we're always asking God, right? And two of those questions is two of those questions are one, is God who he says he is? Right? Which the writer of Hebrews says, you must believe that God exists. And will God do what he promised? Is God a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? Those are two questions we're always asking ourselves. Um, In Birmingham, which is where we were before seminary, I um, went to church with a woman named Lynette. And actually, I would go to church with Lynette's son in St. Louis. Um, He's become a good friend of mine. But Lynette is a number of years older than us. And in a women's Bible study, Lynette gave her testimony one day. Lynette um, was a a covenant child, grew up as a believer. Uh, And when she was 22, um, against advice, um, she married someone who was not a believer. And um, those years were hard in a lot of different ways. And so Lynette began to pray. As her heart became soft toward that, she began to pray. And so she prayed day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And 28 years later, her husband came to know Jesus, which is an amazing story. And then less than two years later, he died. By God's providence. And as Lynette's talking about it, what she would say is, I know those years were hard, but I don't really remember them as much. Because of how good those last two years were. You're going to ask someone like Lynette, is it worth it? Is it worth it to try and live a life pleasing to God? Her answer would be absolutely yes. And we are not guaranteed that it's always going to work out like that. In fact, if you read the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, right, you'll read that by faith, some people shut the mouths of lions, and by faith, other people were sawn in two. Other people lost their homes. Other people lost their families. And all of them didn't receive what was promised because the Lord hasn't come back yet. But the question that the writer of Hebrews is getting at, which is a question for us, is at the end of the day, is it worth it to live a life pleasing to God? It's worth everything. It's worth everything you have. Because he has given you everything literally given you the earth made you a co-heir with Jesus it's worth everything because you are worth everything you are worth the death of Jesus his son on the cross in an agony we can't explain i'll leave you with a verse that we've talked about before because remember Paul's writing this letter from Corinth and so there's a lot of overlap with Corinthians At the end of chapter 15, when he talks about the resurrection, he says, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Or maybe put another way, knowing that in the Lord your labor is worth it. Let's pray. Father, would you be pleased to impart to us this morning that sense of love that we need to desperately feel, that love that expels sin from our hearts, that love that draws us to Jesus, the love that is in our hearts by your grace as a gift through faith. Would you make it real and strong and powerful? Father, would you teach us that living a life pleasing to you is worth it. In Jesus' name, amen.